February 8, 2023. We are fresh on the heels of the state of the something address last night with Mr. Biden. And uh, that doesn't mean anything other than the show must go on here at Munitions Podcast here with Derek DeBross. Uh, coming at you uh, regularly now, it seems. I don't know how many episodes we're in, but the Munitions Podcast talking about firearms, firearms law, firearms use, self-defense, uh, even stuff that maybe is not firearms related. The idea is we're going to talk about it right here. Derek, uh, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. I'm actually trying to find out how many episodes we've done. Uh, can't figure out how this thing works. Uh, I think it's like five or six. Does that sound right? Yeah, five five, five or six episodes. Um here we go. I found it. So and we, we got a total of five. Five of five. We've got the uh, website in development pushed along a little bit further every day until it will be finally launched. And there you'll be able to not only subscribe easily, but you'll also be able to uh, listen to past episodes, uh, might even get a blog going, do some other things. You've got your YouTube channel that lives independently, but... Uh, yeah, it lives independently, but I'm using it more selectively, you know, uh, like, like the arm brace rule came out. I wanted to get information to our audience right away. And we'll continue to do that as current events come out because it takes us a little bit longer to get the podcast going sometimes or get together because we're just busy. Yeah. It, it, so it turns out we're both attorneys. We both uh, would love to do something other than be attorneys. And we both have uh, an interest in firearms. I, I, from a criminal defense standpoint, have been representing folks charged with crimes, both guilty and not guilty folks, for the better part of 28 years now. <laughs> but also a pretty avid hunter. You know what? I, I never really got into handguns. I, I own plenty of them. But I don't. a lot of people go shooting at the range and just start uh, shooting down range at targets with a handgun. I've never really gotten into that. Uh, in fact, the only time I've ever spent at the range is to sight in my hunting rifles. But uh, I do believe in everybody's right to have one. I'm very different than Steve. I, I all the opposites, right? I, I don't, I don't hunt except for pheasant hunt, but I don't do any other hunting. Didn't grow up hunting. I spend most of my time at the range. Do a lot of tactical shooting. A lot of experience with handguns through uh, privately paid for classes I've taken. Served in the military. A lot of experience with combat rifles and things like that. And I've gotten into some precision shooting. I'm actually a certified FBI and. BCI sniper took a class about a year or two ago. And yeah, so watch out. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> Probably the only lawyer in Ohio, I would venture to guess, that's actually passed that class and got certified. Which which I guess from the perspective of the roundtable here at Channel 511, where we do our podcast, it's uh, it brings a nice uh, dichotomy to the table. You know, I, I you know maybe I can learn a few things. I've actually talked to you about doing some self-defense or defense yeah. training or tactical training mm-hmm. with guns. Uh, and then maybe we'll get you out and let you kill a deer sometime. Yeah, I don't know. I or don't, an elk. You know, d- hunting to me, Steve, never really appe- appealed to me because I'm thinking, well, i got to wake up at 4 in the morning, i got to put on uncomfortable clothing, go sit out in the cold in a tree stand that might fall and kill me and douse myself in deer urine. Sounds, it sounds riveting. Uh, well, we'll take you on a different kind of hunting then. Yeah, maybe we'll just. I mean, uh, I, mean I like I like active hunting, pheasant hunting. I like. I think I would like hog hunting. I love fishing, but I, I more like deep sea fishing and fly fishing. I don't like uh, uh, gear fishing, so to speak. Or you're just sitting there watching a bobber. I don't like, I don't have patience. That's the problem. Ah, gotcha. Well, hunting might be the tonic for you. Well, about that. <laughs> either way, you know, is uh, every every week or every couple of weeks when we get ready to do this, I always sort of peruse what's going on legally speaking. I, you know, not to talk about the law, but this is the kind of stuff we I can usually find uh, something going on with guns in the law that that reflects something broader going on in society, and and that's. Frankly, the only reason I fell in love with with the law, I can't say I like practicing law, but that is what's interesting to me. It's fascinating to me that as society goes, so does the law and vice versa, and one may change quicker than the other at any given time, but uh, there's usually uh, sort of a reflection going on. And right now we've got the reflection is uh, is focused a little bit in, on THC, on marijuana. Yeah, there. You know, if I may, I'll just give you a little bit brief background on what I know about it. Absolutely. I think it's at the Ninth Circuit. This has been an issue that's you know it's, what the last 
20 years, we've seen this cultural change with how our society and culture handles marijuana, how we how we view it. Right. I mean, growing up in the 90s, you didn't you didn't get caught with it. It was a bad thing to get caught with marijuana. It was very taboo. Uh, I remember my skater friends in high school smoked pot, you know, and, and you know, the good kids didn't smoke pot. And I yeah. think it's very different now. Yeah, it's one thing to get drunk. Right. Uh, a whole different game right. if you got caught right. with the weed. It's very, very different now. It's much more accepted. Uh, I mean, you can just drive to Michigan from Ohio. Two hours later, you got a whole bag of marijuana for, well, and, you know, and, and get you can get a prescription. So yeah, even you get in a prescription Ohio, in Ohio you can. I think they call it, they don't call it a prescription. They call it a referral or something like that. Uh, well, it's a, you got your med- medical marijuana card now here in Ohio. Is there a card? Yeah, you get your little card that you can carry around. You go into the dispensary. So it's sort of like gambling to me. You know, the government has hijacked the uh, the crime family. And okay. uh, they're they're running the drug show now on marijuana. That's good to know uh, from about what we're about to discuss. So you know, go back. I think it maybe been uh, eight eight years ago or so. I don't remember the exact case. I believe it was out of the Ninth Circuit. First heard this matter. If I have a medicinal marijuana card, if I'm using marijuana legally in the state that I bought it in, let's say, can I possess a gun under the Federal Gun Control Act? So this is the analysis. So the Federal Gun Control Act, in 1968, uh, as amended, uh, lays out nine disabilities from firearm possession. And if you violate these, if you're a felon, for example, and possess a gun, uh, if you're subject to a protection order, which that was just overturned, I believe, as well. The G8, maybe maybe I'm getting it confused. I'd have to go back and look. I think there might have been a a civil protection order uh, case recently that got overturned by a circuit court, Steve. You might want to look that up. But anyhow, uh, under the Gun Control Act, there's a disability that says an unlawful user of a control, uh, a person that is an unlawful user of a controlled substance. Sorry. Um, So the question becomes is if I'm in California, I have a medicinal marijuana card, I'm at the gun range, I get uh, stopped by law enforcement, I get arrested, am I an unlawful user of a controlled substance? And the answer from the court, is, which I believe is correct, is yes. Because under federal law, it's still a scheduled drug, schedule one, I believe, same same as heroin. Um, So do I agree with that? No, absolutely not. But uh, as the law reads... You're committing a federal crime and punishable by, I believe, up to 10 years in prison, half a million dollar fine, something like that. So the Ninth Circuit said that. So when you look and people call me, hey, I got this marijuana card. Can I have a gun? I said, look, that's an interesting question. Having the card is not what's illegal when you have a gun, right? The law doesn't say that I can't have a gun if I have a marijuana card, right? It says I can't be an unlawful user of. Now, what does user of mean? Does that mean ingesting it? Does that mean partaking in it? Does that mean selling it? I think it means all of the above. So, but the card itself is not the controlled substance, but it's exactly the the evidence that would lead a jury to believe that you're an unlawful user of. And yes. So it can be used against you if you're if you're a gun owner. So if you're out there getting a medicinal marijuana card and you're a gun owner, you're putting yourself at some serious legal jeopardy. Yeah, and in Ohio, it has been the situation. It's been the case in Ohio that if you have a medical marijuana card, that almost is de facto you cannot get. A license now the law has changed, so we have constitutional carry, which would make this more interesting. But you couldn't get a license to carry a concealed handgun if you also had a medical marijuana card. I think there was that uh, that sort of dilemma at, at, until the law changed recently here in Ohio. So, and you're right, it, uh, the federal law says uh, it's illegal for quote unlawful users of uh, or addicts of controlled substances right. to possess and, and firearms. Addicts was the other one. And by the way, just to clarify what I just stated a few minutes ago, um, I'm learning an article from February second. Uh, yes, uh, the law barring people with domestic violence restraining orders, or what the federal law calls restraining orders or protection orders, from having guns is unconstitutional. So this Bruin case we're about about to start talking about, which we've talked about in a prior podcast, is making huge ripples through yeah. through the law 
And I'm surprised that they actually got some traction already on the Federal Gun Control Act. I didn't think that would happen. Uh, we were looking at attacking it from a, a nonviolent felon standard, that nonviolent felons shouldn't be dispossessed. But it looks like now we have a, a I think it's a district court saying the G8, as we call it, disability, there's one through nine, and this is the eighth one, uh, if you're subject to protection or you can't have a gun, is unconstitutional under Bruin. And I and I we're about to talk about, Steve will bring up a, a district court case where the judge said um, that it's unconstitutional under Bruin to restrict people that use medicinal marijuana. Yeah. So what happens is, you know, the federal judge or a federal court out in Oklahoma, I think, uh, was looking at this case. The the guy was, uh, I think his name was Jared Harrison. He was charged with crimes. He was charged with, I think, probably an unlawful possession crime, or maybe it's a declaratory judgment action. I have to dig into it a little bit more. But here's the takeaway, and here's what the federal judge said there. And so here we are with the federal government now arguing that Harrison's mere status as a user of marijuana justifies stripping him of his fundamental right to possess a firearm. Uh, wrote the judge in a in his 54-page opinion. So he, he dug into it a bit. Uh, for all the reasons given above, he says, this is not a constitutionally permissible means of disarming Harrison. I love that language because what that is, I mean, I, I don't even have to read this opinion because what this judge, has, to know this, this judge deems the constitutional right significant. And uh, this, again, is the most recent U.S. Supreme Court pronouncement saying, look, this is a real right, and it's got teeth again, and there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, what, I, what, I, what I find fascinating is, and the reason I brought this up when we first started, is we're fresh on the heels of uh, the State of the Union address by Biden, which included some commentary on banning assault rifles or, or banning guns or all sorts of gun control measures. And at the same time, our executive is saying that we have the district courts, the federal district courts and the U.S. Supreme Court sort of doing the opposite. And this is the beauty of separation of powers in our country. And knock on wood, at least we still have that until they turn yeah, back hopefully. to court. It was interesting is uh, we were working up a case, as I just said, uh, regarding nonviolent felons and did a lot of research on this. And I read a dissent by Amy Coney, uh, Amy Comey, Comey, Barrett. Coney, Coney Barrett. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Justice Barrett. And she, it was in a case where she argued that basically nonviolent felons should be dispossessed of their firearm rights. But she she made a lot of analogy to, you know, the the history and tradition of, you know, who should be banned. It's basically dangerous individuals. And there was some um, there was some some discussion about drug offenders being more predisposed uh, toward violent or uh, unruly tendencies, if you will. Again, I'm, I'm butchering this. Read the case if you want the exact citations and, and language. Um, but I wonder how this will actually stand up even under. Uh, Justice Barrett's view of the Second Amendment and the restrictions we can put on people, um, you know, because what's interesting in this situation is that under state law, it's not illegal. You know, it's not it's not like 1985 anymore right. where I'm buying crack on the street. I'm the kind of person that's going to buy crack on the street. This is a very different situation, I think, in modern times with our culture changing and viewing drugs differently, at least this particular drug. Yeah. So is it, it and we're sort of stuck on this or focusing on this language, unlawful user of a controlled substance. Well, anybody who's using marijuana anywhere is at least under the federal standard, an unlawful user of marijuana. I mean, the federal law out there still prohibits right. it. Now we all know that I think like 37 States or something like that now have some legalized use of marijuana and the federal government has really done nothing. There's been this political bantering back and forth about trying to uh, do something about marijuana and, and, and legalizing it, but it's sort of getting kicked back to the states de facto. And the states are saying, no, you can use it in our state. Ohio is one of them. You can get a me medical marijuana card. Uh, like you said, Michigan's another. So is it constitutional for the federal or for any government, the federal or state government to then strip you of your rights? And this court at least says no. Now what's, what's going to happen here just to, to think or to sort of lay it out legally. This is uh 
these things sort of happen at first at sometimes the state court level where a state court law is challenged. And then if the defendant loses at the state court level or the litigant loses at the state court level, then they, they appeal to the federal court level. And that'll go to the district court. And then once the district court reaches a decision, it goes to the circuit court. And here, the circuit judge, sort of the federal court of appeals, has issued this ruling. So this is far from over. It's going Oh, this to, is a circuit case? This is a marijuana case? I believe it was. I thought it, it was a district court Oh, case. I might be wrong. You're right. Yeah, I think the uh, the civil protection order case, I believe, was a circuit case, but I believe this is a uh, district court case. So it could still be overturned at the circuit you're, you're level. Yes. And, and, and so the audience knows, even if – so normally what will happen at the circuit level, you get a panel of three judges that will hear oral arguments as to whether or not the lower court ruling was correct or not. If it's, over, if it's, if it's upheld, the lower court ruling, it could still be overturned at the circuit court level if they grant what we call an en banc proceeding where Correct. the entire panel of the circuit court, all the judges hear this and take a vote as to whether or not um, it should stand. This happened in the Sixth Circuit. Before Bruin, there was a case out of the Sixth Circuit. Justice Boggs, writing for the majority of the panel, three judges, said that, look, strict scrutiny applies to the Second Amendment. Now, we know today that that's, in fact, incorrect, as I argued in front of the Sixth Circuit. Um, but if we have to take a scrutiny standard, strict is what we want. That case, I think it was the Hillsdale case, was heard on Bonk, and and Justice Boggs' opinion then was overturned. So a lot of things can happen still with this case, and I expect to see some things happen. What district is that in, Steve? Oklahoma. You know? Or Circuit, sorry. I do not know. I have to look that up. That would be interesting to know because that might determine how uh, they view this law when it goes up. and it could very well, and I think it may end up in front of the Supreme Court. This is one that's going to have to. And, and then it's a, last September, a federal judge in Midland, Texas, uh, ruled that firearms law that bans those under felony indictment from buying guns is unconstitutional. So this is the kind of stuff that's happening on the heels of the U.S. Supreme Court pronouncements, because what they're looking at is, is now this sort of historical uh, text assessment of the law. Like, is it, has it been historically permitted or not permitted uh, to possess a firearm in a certain situation? And, you know, the thing they call it history, text, and tradition analysis. And, you know, what they're doing is looking back and saying, you know, what, 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 what was intended at the time and can we sort of apply that now? Um, it's a weird standard in the sense that it's hard to pin down. But- it's the 10th, 10th uh, Circuit Court, by the way. So the 10th Circuit Court. So what's going to happen next is that's going up to the 10th Circuit, and the 10th Circuit is going to hear it. And like you said, they'll probably end up with an on-bank review, which means after the first decision, there'll be a request for mm -hmm. the entire panel to look at it. Right. And then once that decision comes out, they're going to uh, – undoubtedly, they're at least going to ask – one side or another is going to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to review it. U.S. Supreme Court doesn't have to take these cases. And this is what maybe is uh, important to note – that you can't just say uh, I'm going to appeal all the way to the Supreme Court, and with the understanding that the Supreme Court is going to let you. The Supreme Court appellate process, in in every case that we would care about, to some extent, mm -hmm. uh, requires uh, something called a petition for cert or certiorari, which is fancy talk to say, hey, we have to ask the court and explain to the court why this is so important and why they should look at it and why they should give us a decision and a pronouncement. And and when you get to that level, courts aren't looking for uh, – they don't care about the facts. They don't care like what happens to uh, Jared Harrison here so much as they care about how are the facts going to create law that is then going to be applied more universally to the rest of us. So they're looking for a more broad uh, application of the law in order to fix an injustice 
uh, or rather than try to fix an individual unique injustice based on facts. So the U.S. Supreme Court, I don't, I don't know what the ratio is of cases they, they are asked to review and the ones they actually accept, but it's like it's nominal. How many cases have you handled where uh, marijuana has been involved with a firearm and that's been an issue at the criminal level? Uh, plenty. I mean, you know, it, 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 but it's changed. I guess it, it's, it's relevant to note that just 15 years ago, I was in federal court regularly hmm. defending marijuana trafficking cases. Really? And what's interesting now, even though it's lawful in Ohio, I, the trafficking is still going on on a huge level. You know, people are still bringing pounds in from Arizona. People are still uh, transporting it. People still are, have grow houses and are growing it illegally. But I have not had a whiff of a federal marijuana case in several years. Um, and, you know, almost all of those cases have a a more significant criminal component, like they're trafficking in drugs or they are uh, mm. moving them across state lines. And if they have guns, it's m- almost always designed for some defense of their criminal enterprise. Um, now, the cases where you have a couple, you have 10 pounds in your closet and in your gun safe, in your basement, you have your all your hunting guns, it gets a little more dicey whether the weapon were, were part of the trafficking or part of the crime or not. And I got a hunch that's how this is going to somehow uh, shake out, that if like if I have a gun with me and it is somehow linked to my criminal behavior with unlawful drugs, right. I suspect the Supreme Court's not is going to say you can prosecute that all day long. Um, if I maybe if I have if I have if I have guns and I also happen to have a, a you know personal use amounts of marijuana in my car and I get pulled over. You know, should that strip me of my gun rights? I think the Supreme Court's going to say no. Oh, it's akin to alcohol. I mean, you can be plastered off your ass and have a gun and it's like a misdemeanor. You don't lose your gun rights for it. And you don't lose your gun rights. That's right. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's crazy. Unlawful use of a weapon while intoxicated. Yep. I think it's a first degree first if it's the first time in Ohio. And then, you know, make it even more complicated. I've defended a number of cases where possession means it's in your bloodstream. So mm-hmm. think about that. Like how many people are walking around after a ski trip or going into the spring ski season in Colorado, which is phenomenal. So people are going to go out to ski. They're going to get their bake on as they wake <laughs> right. up. Go, go hit the slush bumps all day long and then uh, get baked at night. Well, there's other constitutional issues with it too. You know, like when, when do I cease to be a user, right? And like if I use, if I ingest marijuana today, but I say right after I ingest it, right after my high is gone, I'm done. You're done, right? So am I still dis- disallowed? So what the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations that associates with that law, which is how the agency enforces the law says, we look at convictions. If you have a single drug conviction on your record, it's a one-year disability. And if it's multiple convictions, it's a five-year disability. I think five years from your last conviction, if I remember correctly. So the CFR tries to flesh that out, but it seems to me that it's just arbitrary. Like, who made that up, and why is it that many years? This is why I hate the administrative state. But, you know, and this is the scenario I was talking about. You fly home after your ski trip, you still got marijuana in your blood. You have THC in your bloodstream, or in your urine, in your bloodstream. Your body hasn't cleared it out yet. Um, In theory, there's case law in Ohio that would say you're in possession. Hmm. And now, is that using? Well- I don't, I don't know. I mean, if you're a user, is that present right. tense? Is it past tense? It, it, I quit it, using, judge. I think there's a lot of constitutional problems with it. I think it's definitely a vague. It's it's constitutionally overly broad in, in some yeah. ways. And obviously, Bruin creates a real problem for it. Um, I don't know much about the history of marijuana, but I'm, you know, we hear anecdotes over our lives that, you know, George Washington was growing hemp and, and THC plants and all that. Oh, I'm sure they stuff. were. Yeah. I mean, hemp has its own right. historical so, use. So historically, it shouldn't be a disability <laughs> if it wasn't yeah. back then, right? Right. And, um, and and I know that Merrick Garland was tasked right before the election by Biden to look into descheduling marijuana. There's been no discussion about how that affects gun rights and if they 
um, do what I think they will do, and they just focus on the marijuana law and they just deschedule it, well, then it's treated like alcohol, essentially. Yeah, then then are you an addict, so to speak? And, you know, I, I it, that's so vague that it'll never be, I don't think that'll ever go anywhere. It's a problematic law. And in Ohio, we have a version, let's bring that up, it's 2923.13, and uh, it's kind of a funny way of writing it, but let me have it right here. Here we go. So, if you look at subsection... Oh, I wish I had this memorized because your internet down here is not the best. Here we go. Got it. All right. All right. The person is a drug dependent. Yeah. In danger of drug dependence, whatever that means. Everybody or, who uses right. drugs. Or my favorite, you're the last clause, or a chronic alcoholic. What the hell is a chronic alcoholic? Yeah, exactly. I well, thought, What the Steve, hell is an alcoholic? Well, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. What makes it chronic? And it's not—it's not a medical term. I've looked it up, and I've argued these case, this case, that issue in front of state level judges before. And who gets to decide? By the way, when does it attach? If I have four DUIs, is that enough? Five? And does the sheriff just get to decide without? Right. By the way, due process for a fundamental right. Let me uh, let me throw two things at you. There is something in Ohio called intervention in lieu of conviction. Intervention in lieu of conviction is a process by which if you commit a crime and it's the result of some sort of drug use or drug dependency. So in other words, you're wasted and you break into somebody's house or your girlfriend's house or something. Or or maybe uh, you're wasted and you need to get high, so you go steal some stuff. Uh, It's usually usually only applies to nonviolent stuff, so leave out the break-in. The courts will let you present evidence that you were drug dependent. That uh, so you've been assessed and you have a drug dependency and uh, the drugs contributed to that dependency contributed to your criminal behavior and and you go get an assessment and prove it so you know on the defense side we're actually offering evidence that would end up as a restriction and I know you and I have worked on cases like this before and you sort of wonder you know if I've been adjudicated as um, a drug dependent purposes for intervention in lieu of conviction am I now prohibited in perpetuity from I would say under federal law, if that law is constitutional, or under state law, if that law remains constitutional, which I don't think it can, but if it were, I would say that would be the closest you could get because just the sheriff deciding that you've had too many DUIs, where's the due process? You're talking about a fundamental right. You right. can't take it without due process. It needs to be a hearing, opportunity to be heard, counsel, all that needs to exist. So by saying somebody's a drug dependent, well, there's got to be an adjudication. There has to be. There's got to be something. Now, here's the other one I want to throw at you. I'm defending a case right now. I just resolved it last week in in a local uh, central Ohio court, not Columbus. And on, in the complaint, my client was pulled over for like um, a license plate light or something stupid. And uh, they ended up searching a car through this progression of whatever. And they found marijuana. And they found a pipe and they found some uh, a vape pen. And maybe some leaf too, but small amounts. We're talking like minor misdemeanor amounts. And uh, on the complaints, the cop would say, I hereby charge you with drug abuse, uh, two wit, uh, being in possession of a controlled substance, two wit, marijuana. And then then it added like four sentences that would say, and defendant is a drug dependent person and an addicted user of an unlawful drug or substance. You know, the, basically quoting the federal mm-hmm. language. And I looked at the complaint. Um, and, I, and the prosecutor offered me a deal that would get rid of the more serious charge that we had to deal with that day. And uh, he had to plead to this minor misdemeanor. And I said, well, look, I'll, I'll do that, but we're going to strike that language from the complaint. Because as soon as you plead guilty to something like that, it's an admission. It's, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you plead guilty to a complaint, you're admitting to all the facts alleged right. in the complaint. 
And uh, so you've basically offered an admission that would uh, trigger your federal firearms restriction if somebody chose right. to try to enforce it. You know, as I think about it, as we talk about this, I'm looking through the disabilities. They all have due process. You have to be classified as this person before you lose your gun rights. Right? I have to be convicted of a felony. I have to be convicted of an MCDV. I have to be subject to a protection order which requires a hearing. I have to um, be deemed by a, a military tribunal to be dishonorably discharged. I have all these procedural rights before I'm classified. But as the law reads for drugs, it just says they have to be an unlawful user of. Well, where's my due process rights and before I'm classified it? that way? Yeah, how do they prove it's it? It's a real problem, I think, constitutionally at both the state and federal level. And I've been preaching this for years. And I haven't read the case from the district court. Maybe they address that issue. But how you, know, you just let the sheriff decide that I'm, a, that I'm a chronic alcoholic or an unlawful user because you caught me once smoking a joint? Yeah, and this has always been sort of the problem with the red flag laws too, right? You get a, a family member or somebody who doesn't like you, say a, a, an abused spouse or somebody who has uh, uh, got a reason to screw with you, and they call and they start making allegations that you're crazy and you shouldn't have guns and right. you, you know, you've got a mental health problem, et cetera. And next thing you know, you're in the ringer or you're in the the sort of the meat grinder of getting assessments and and – uh, et cetera. So, you know, it, it's always in the details because everybody would agree. Or I think most people would agree. If you're crazy and you're dangerous, you probably shouldn't have guns. That's not the that's not the question is how do you determine if you're crazy and dangerous and whose job is that to make that determination? And can we trust mm-hmm. the process to do it correctly? Because it's too easy to abuse that process yeah. when a prosecutor or, you know, Buford Pusser, local sheriff doesn't want you having guns. Or in my case, some cop who just took it upon himself in the context of a minor misdemeanor, putting in a criminal complaint right. that language that if my client agreed to it, in theory, uh, takes away his gun rights. That actually was a disability in Ohio up until like 2013. It just said any drug offense was a disability. If you, you may remember this. It's now felony offenses. Yeah. But it used to be you just said any drug offense. Yeah, so and, and misdemeanors. So there was a conflict in the district courts in Ohio um, I think one up in Cleveland said it's unconstitutional, which I think was correct, believe it or not, in Cleveland. And then Cincinnati, Hamilton County said it it, it was uh, constitutional. And so instead of the Supreme Court getting involved, the General Assembly just changed it. And for the better, I mean, because minor misdemeanors, I think that Cincinnati case stemmed that a minor misdemeanor drug offense that you lose your gun rights. For a minor misdemeanor, that's insane. That's insane. Yeah. It's insane. It's a traffic offense. And, and this is the stuff that results in ridiculous outcomes. So either... You know, say you just pled guilty because it was the easiest thing to do. You you weren't, as you're standing there in court, pleading guilty to a minor misdemeanor thinking, all right, now I've got to get rid of every single gun that I have in my hunting safe and I'm no longer allowed to use right. them. I mean, it, it's like there's no notice of that other than it's in some weird CFR somehow, somewhere. Due process. That's right. the whole that's the whole problem with these drug disabilities on both federal and state level, the chronic alcoholism thing, the user of, uh, you know, uh, uh, at risk of being an addict and just weird language like this. Like these are fun. This is a fundamental and individual right guaranteed us by the Second Amendment because of the Heller decision, because of McDonald decision, just like our right to free speech and to take those rights. Again, due process must attach. And this was actually an early on case after Heller came out regarding mental health. Because there was a case out of Maryland that had traditionally said before Heller, I think their process at the time, don't quote me on this, was, you know, psychiatrists could admit you. There was no court process needed. And they said, yep, you lose your gun rights. But then Heller came out and then another case said, nope, you can't. You have to have due process because now this is a fundamental and individual right. It's not a collective right to the militia. This is a right that Steve Palmer holds as a citizen of this country. And to take that right, due process must attach. So the the framework is already there under the mental health disability. It just needs to be applied to the drug disability. 
you can't just say you're classified as a disabled individual until you've had due process. So there's got to be a process for the classification. And, you know, the, the, the government, if they wanted to overreach, like take my case again, for an example, they would say, well, look, there was due process. The language is in the complaint. He appeared in front of a tribunal, a court, and he admitted the language. That's due process enough. What's, but what isn't due process is when he admitted the language, he didn't know what he was doing. He wasn't informed that that would be a yeah. restriction. And secondly, it was unnecessary for the conviction. So yeah. the conviction to which he was pleading guilty had no better, the, the surplus language there had no bearing on the, yeah. con, on the conviction to which he was pleading guilty. So I guess the, the takeaway from all this is get a damn lawyer, right? Because a good lawyer that, that knows this stuff. Right. Because it's interesting you bring that up. It brought up, you know, you, you said he wasn't informed of this. Well, that's an ineffective assistance to counsel issue. It's funny. I mean, I've done this for 15 years now. I can't tell you how many times I've had to argue an effective assistance to counsel. I've had clients specifically ask their lawyer, I got one right now. I can't lose my gun rights. And he said, no, 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 this is just going to be battery under this state's law. You're not pleading out the domestic violence. See, it says domestic violence battery doesn't count, but it does count. It does. Yeah. And now this guy has lost his gun rights. He's in a state where it's not easy to fix. And I, we're trying to, we're probably going to have to file a pardon. Good luck. I mean, at the end of the day, those things are very challenging to get. We'll, we'll definitely try our best and hopefully he'll win. But because he had an attorney who didn't understand what they were doing. Yep. And then, you know, what's the, I think for years and years and years, this stuff did not emerge as a big issue so much because the background checks didn't, they didn't flag it on the background checks or they would get by. Like I've had people that I've referred to you that have, you know, they've got an old case right. that is theoretically an exclusion, maybe, maybe not. And they still have been buying guns for 10 years sure. and all of a sudden they get flagged. And it's sure. like, now what? Yep. Nick's system has been aggressively trying to get more and more records into the system and they're. They're taking everything, even things that are they don't have uh, what we call dispositions on the record. They'll still deny you. That's a whole other discussion for another day. The Nick system, I can go on and on about how ineffective yeah. it is, but yeah. um, we'll discuss it another topic another day. But in any event, yeah, you'll see people not get denied that should get denied and people get denied that should not get denied. It and, happens all the time. And I guess if there's a litmus test, if you're if you're accused of a crime, whether you did it or not, believe me, if I only represented people that did not do it, I would not be in business. I would be broke. So a lot of what we do is addressing these kind of issues to solve the problem in such a way that we can resolve the case and preserve your firearms rights. And so here's my here's the here's the rule. If you have guns and you're accused of a crime, you should ask your lawyer and get a good answer as to what this will do to your firearms rights. So you noticed I didn't specify what crime. I didn't specify right. what to use your guns for. I didn't specify where you were accused whether it's federal, state or local courts. Anywhere you're accused of a crime and you have firearms, you should talk to your lawyer about it because there are snakes in the grass that people step yeah. in all the time. Lawyers step in them yeah. all the time because, I, look, I had, a, I had a lawyer, a guy call me recently, this week, and uh, he said, yeah, I asked the lawyer I was working with uh, whether this would affect my gun rights. You know what his answer was? What? You know, what do you need guns for anyway? Huh? <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's well, none of your damn business. <laughs> and, and, and my client's like, what do you mean? What do I need guns for anyway? What do you, I mean, because I want them. You're right. I it's want America. Them. This is, this is <laughs> United States. And it was like, well, can't you, you know, just, you know, what do you, what do you need to carry a handgun around for? And, and it's like, that's probably not the answer you want. I would have fired that attorney right away. Well, he did. And then he called me, but you know, that's not the answer you want. Yeah. When, and if you get an answer like that, or I look, I don't mind if you get an answer from an attorney that is, I don't know. Let me check. 
Well, he's being honest. Because that is what we are trained to do. It's called the practice of law. Right. Do I know every <laughs> single nuance of every single regulatory scheme of every single law in every single state and every single government? No, of course not. But I know where the issues lie. And in guns and crime, that's an issue. So, Derek, you probably get two or three texts a month from me. Oh, hey, at least, yeah. Got a client doing XYZ. Yeah. I got a problem and then you'll give me the thing and it gets me yeah. started on my research. And, you know, sometimes my answer to the client is, look, this may impact your gun rights and we have to take that into account. Now, the alternative is no good either because you're going right. to be convicted of something. Right. This is the best we can do, but they it's know. going to be an issue. Well, they know and you're not ineffective. You yep. know, part of the analysis under the Strickland test on ineffective counsel was making in, in the Padilla case, which is an immigration case, we make we make these arguments all the time when ineffective counsel is that if it's an if it's a direct and immediate effect, like they have to be advised of that. Yes. They so have to be. What you're talking about is like if my client is pleading guilty to a crime and he's an, he's not uh, a citizen. I have to tell my client whether that can impact right. his ability to stay in the country and or be deported. That's the Padilla case. That's the Padilla case. And, you know, ineffective assistance uh, is gauged not on the decisions you make because decisions are strategic often. But if you do, if you make a, an uninformed decision or an un, uninvestigated right. decision, if I don't ask you about it, if right. I don't call a colleague or do the research or figure out an answer, even if the answer is I don't know or there is no good answer, you just have to decide, Mr. Client. At least then I've done everything I can. You know, right. I can't solve every client's problem, but I can identify them and try to come up with the best possible solution, albeit not a good one anyway. Yeah, if I don't know the answer and like I'm sitting there, we got to go plead out or we got to go take it to trial. And I say, look, I, I don't have the answer for you. You know, we can ask for a continuance. You can fire me, get another lawyer. At least they had options. They could have yep. made an educated decision with what they knew at the time. But yep. too many times these attorneys just look at the face of the law and say, yep, you're good. And that's not how it fleshes out in case law. Yeah, you've got to you've got to do the work up. And now, look, I, I, the other thing that I I think lawyers and clients that we should admit regularly is that we don't know everything. And when a client, I think lawyers have uh, egos, probably bigger than most. And often lawyers will say, like a client will say, "Well, this is going to impact my gun rights. I got you no, know, don't worry about it. I got it, or I know what I'm doing, or I'll tell you if there's a problem, or whatever it is." And they'll sort of brush off those questions that are really pointed questions that are exposing some gap in my knowledge. Well, I always would say, you know, that's a real damn good question. I don't know the answer to it. Let me see if I can get back to you. Now, if I do know the answer and I give it to them, they don't like the answer. Well, that's, you know, that's a whole different discussion. But uh, often I don't know and I got to look it up. If your lawyer is unwilling to pay lip service in a reasonable way, in a way that makes you understand and breaks down what impact a crime will have on your potential gun rights, then you need to get advice yeah. From somebody like Derek. And, and here is my my advice, having um, uh, set aside many convictions for domestic violence in particular in, in particular over the last 15 years because of ineffective counsel. Um, if you hire an attorney, you're charged with any crime. Like you said, Steve, I would specifically ask them, how will it affect my gun rights? Will I lose my gun rights? And put it in writing. Yep. Because I've had attorneys tell their clients it won't affect their gun rights. And I've used that in a court to overturn or to set aside a conviction. So having it in writing is is clear evidence because the court will likely believe the attorney over the client. Yeah. So if I what what you're saying is if a client accuses me later of not telling them something right. and uh, or telling them something uh, that's wrong, and uh, it's not in writing, I haven't gotten, I haven't, I didn't deliver that advice in writing in an email in a letter or something. Uh, I'm gonna go. The, you run the risk of a lawyer going into court and saying, "I don't recall ever right. saying anything like that," or just saying it never happened, or flat out saying lying and saying it didn't happen. 
uh, you're, I, I always advise clients, and I'm careful to do this on these kind of issues in writing, and for the reasons you're talking about, because if I'm wrong, I'm not trying to screw this guy. I, I don't want to be wrong, but it, it, I'm, I'm fallible too. So if I put in writing, hey, look, I've done this research, and I don't see it to be a problem. Uh, please go get a second opinion if you're concerned, and I'll refer him to somebody like you. Um, or if I say, look, I've done this research, and it is no problem, and I'm wrong, they can go to you later and at least try to fix it. Um, yeah. because the, you know, we all want an outcome here that is, um, that's just right. No, of course. And, 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 you know, look, if you're going to lose your gun rights because of the conviction to me, this is what I tell my clients. And I think you do the same when we've, we've co-counseled on cases together. Your first goal is to stay out of prison. Your liberty is number one, always, even before gun rights, because it, gun rights don't mean shit if you don't have liberty. And then number two is your gun rights. Yep. And that's generally how I look at things. Like yep. I can keep you out of jail, but I can't save your gun rights. As long as you understand that you can make an educated decision. And sometimes I can. I negotiate jail in lieu of losing their gun rights. So I've done yeah. stuff like that before. You remember but, that case we had? It was a DUI. Um, he was, I, he was on uh, his medic. He was drunk. I think he had a marijuana pen with him and he had a very um, high profile job in the financial sector. And his first concern obviously was his Liberty. Second was his gun rights, but he also wanted to keep his job. And we did an extensive research on the licensing. And it was very, very gray. And he got very mm -hmm. frustrated with us, but we're trying to save all of these things. And sometimes you can't save all of them. I can protect you from going to jail. I can keep your gun rights, but I might not be able to protect your job. Yeah. And this is like uh, maybe some lawyer one-on-one stuff. You know, we can't, we can't fix everything. And I always call these the Star Trek, I think it was like the Kobayashi no-win scenario. You know, it's like, the, you, this is a no-win scenario. You're going to be convicted. If people say, I can't be convicted of anything because I'll lose my gun rights. And I'm looking at the case. I'm like, you're going to be convicted of something. <laughs> well, I can't have that because I'm going to lose my gun rights. Yeah. And, you know, we can't take that burden on. We have to give them good advice and try to get them through the best they can. But uh, that case you're talking about was one of those. I mean, yeah. it was like no matter where you stop the leak, another one sprung open somewhere else. And uh, We got a great result in that case too. And it turns out we did. We ended up achieving all his goals, just not on the timeline that he wanted. Yeah. I you think know. he kept his job. I think he correctly. did. Yeah. yeah. I think he kept his license, kept his gun, got his gun back maybe. Yeah. And – uh and avoided prison. So all that was good. It just, but it took some finagle and it was a lot of work. So, yeah. all right, let's hit the ammo can. We'll wrap it up with the ammo can. And you know, we get these questions regularly. You get them on YouTube. I get them in the emails. I get them from clients upstairs. And if you want to submit a question, uh, where are we doing that right now? You're doing it over at Munitions. Yeah. Library. Just, if you go to our website, munitionsgroup.com, there's like, ask us a question or contact us at the bottom of the, of each web, web page there. And you can just submit a question. We'll put it in the queue. All right. So I am going to confess um, we, I, I looked through the questions and we pulled one that happened to be relevant for the discussion today and it involves marijuana because we do get this question a lot where you live at home and your spouse has a marijuana card, your wife or your husband, uh, and you have guns. And so your wife or husband uses marijuana regularly. Maybe it's even in the nightstand next to the gun because, uh, that's where the gun goes, but it's not your marijuana. It's not your, uh, mm -hmm. prescription. It's theirs. Uh, can you still have firearms in the house? So go at it, gun guy. What say you? Okay, so I think we may or may not have addressed, I know I've addressed this on my YouTube channel, maybe on the podcast. It, it, the analysis applies to living with a felon too, right? So what's the crime here? Well, it's if, if somebody's an unlawful user of a controlled substance, they can't possess a gun. So let's say your spouse, just for hypothetical sake, sleeps next to you in the same bed, has their own nightstand, keeps their medicinal marijuana in the nightstand. You keep your gun. You're not a user of, but you keep it in your nightstand. It's illegal for him or her to possess a firearm. It's against the law. So what is possession? Well, possession is dominion and control. That's you know, actual possession is touching something. Constructive possession is having the power and the intent 
to exercise dominion and control. So you got to remember that power and intent needs to be proven in a court of law to prove constructive possession. And then on top of that, we have to apply or, or bring into the equation complicity, right? So because you're not actually using the drugs, are you complicit in assisting? Are you aiding and abetting, if you will, this person in, in committing an offense? That's how your criminal liability would come to fruition, in my opinion. You're not obviously the user of, but if you're assisting somebody in committing that crime, it could be an issue. So generally what we tell people is, you know, it's generally okay to have a gun in the house, but they can't have possession of it, even constructively, which means it's got to be in a safe where it's locked up and they don't have the key or the combination because the government would have to prove possession, right? That's going to be the start of the whole case. And if they can't prove possession, the case just goes away. And that's my opinion on it. All right. Well, let me cheat. I'm going to switch it around. I'm going to actually take two questions today because uh, I get this question. We've had this question. So I'm going to pull this to the top too. Um, I'm going to pull it also to the top. Not top two. All right. So if if my spouse or husband has the gun, I'm, I'm, I'm creating these facts, but it's to answer the question that was asked, has the gun in the nightstand, not even my nightstand, and uh, somebody breaks into the house, I'm a regular user of marijuana, or I'm on probation, or I've got some other disability uh, whereby I'm not allowed to own or possess firearms or possess firearms. Um, can I use that gun mm-hmm. uh, to defend myself, my family, my house? This happened uh, not long ago, I think in New Mexico, some felon helped the cop that was being attacked, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, it comes down to me, a common law defense of justification, much like deadly force self-defense. In and of itself, in a vacuum, it's a crime. But are you justified in that behavior? I think they use the example in law school, you're at Lake Erie, uh, Rattlesnake Island, which is a private island. You can't trespass, but you're in a kayak. Storm brews up to save your life. You have to trespass. You've committed a crime, but are you justified in that behavior? Yep. Much like taking a life, if you're justified in it, can you use that as a defense? And and look, the facts matter. Prosecutors have prosecutorial discretion. They shouldn't charge that crime, but they may from a technical standpoint. Well, it turns out I just tried this case down in uh, Hocking County. Um, my client used a firearm to defend himself. In order to do that, he had to shoot across a roadway. So it's against the law in Ohio. It's against the law in Ohio to uh, discharge a firearm on or across a roadway. Right. Can't do it. Uh, In fact, it's a felony. Right. That'll put you in prison. Sure. So you can't, not only can't you do it, they'll give you a firearm spec for it and you'll do three years plus 18 months. Um, And uh, it turns out that self-defense is also a defense to that regulatory type crime. Right. And it's not obvious that it should be, but it's, I think it's just one of those outcomes that it's the only fair outcome that if, yeah, if it's, it's self-defense, yeah. you should be able to defend yourself uh, or defend the uh, use self-defense against those regulatory type crimes. Uh, in addition to the primary of say the murder right. or the felonious assault or whatever other crime you're charged with by virtue of using a gun. So, yeah, I mean, there would be no other, no other justification as a disabled per, dispos, I'm going to use the word disabled, meaning the legal disability. There should be no other reason a disabled person should have to touch a gun other than self-defense. There would be no reason. There would be no reason. Right. That would be the justification. So I think it gets back to the fundamentals of common law and what self-defense is. It's a justification defense at its core. And I think that yeah. I think that we're saying the same thing different and, ways. And I think the U.S. Supreme Court, if you go to the history text and, and um, tradition analysis, Self-defense is ingrained in our souls. It goes all the way back to uh, common law in England, sure. you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, probably thousands of years ago. It's sort of, it is implicit that we have a fundamental right to defend ourselves 
that is a, the core value yeah. of the Second Amendment. That's what Heller said, among other things. Yeah. So, of the Second Amendment. So it, it's like uh, to to strip you of that right just because of a disability, a weapons disability. Uh, I think the U.S. Supreme Court would agree all day long, every day. So, you got a good topic for our next one. I've always wanted to do. I want to talk about Joe Rogan and guns. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Speaking of marijuana and guns, that, that right? will be the next topic: Joe Rogan and firearms, and we'll also do Martha Stewart and firearms. All right, we're going to hit Rogan and Stewart. <laughs> Coming at you next time. Well, this has been Munitions Podcast, where we are taking on all things guns, as we said. And uh, we're going to try to come out, we're trying to cover all sorts of stuff. So not just the legal boring stuff, but I think uh, people sort of understand how society reflects the law and law reflects society. And guns are, are such an integral part of our lives here, particularly in this country, that it's almost impossible to avoid the topic. And mm-hmm. that's why we're, that's why we're hitting this. Uh, so for now, until next time, this is Munitions Podcast.